significant suffering, but God is good, and I thank you for reminding us to rest in his will always. I invite you to turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. Today we are going to read together verses 13 through 22. The Christian life is in many ways a difficult life. It's certainly not the easiest life to live. We, uh, our, our true home is the new creation, and uh, for the time being, God has us here. We reside in this world as strangers and aliens, and uh, God has us here for a reason and for a purpose, and that purpose is to do good, to serve and to bless those who are around us in order that others might see the goodness of God and be drawn to Christ. But that does not mean that it is easy or that this life will be admired. There are times when we will suffer. There are times when we will be slandered, misunderstood, mistreated, and maligned, as many of Peter's readers were experiencing in their lives. When our hope and our life are attacked, our hope in Christ as we look to the future, our, the life that we are seeking to live, pleasing the Lord and uh, doing good and serving others as he calls us to do, when our life and our hope are attacked, how can we stand firm, defend our hope, and press on in doing good? Today, Peter once again directs our attention to Christ, who has paid for our sins, and now the entire kingdom of darkness is, has been subjected to him. That means that our hope is secure, and that good news is what strengthens our hearts and moves us to continue to serve and to do good, even in situations where it is difficult. Let's look at this uh, long passage. Uh, it's a long passage, and Peter says a lot in these short verses. So I invite you to, to read these verses, but also bear with me. Uh, there are some parts of this uh, passage that are difficult, and we will uh, address those when we get to them. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is good rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died once uh, for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing on it. 
Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would grant us the Holy Spirit in order to understand your word to us today. We pray, Father, that you would grow us in Christ, that you would minister this good news to our hearts in such a way that we will become more and more like him. And as he is the suffering servant who gave his life for us and who serves us even now, that we would be a people who also serve others like him. We pray this in the name of our blessed Savior. Amen. <clears throat> what Peter says in these verses is dizzying and confusing. It is dizzying because Peter transitions so quickly between topics. One moment he's talking about our calling to do good, even if we suffer for it. The next moment he's talking about Christ's death for our sins. And finally he ends up talking about spirits in prison and authorities and angels and powers. What is the connection between all these things? Uh, thinking through those implications makes our head spin. But it's also confusing for a second reason. Spirits in prison? Who are these spirits in prison? What did Jesus say to them? When and where did he say it? It was uh, particularly on account of verse 19 that Martin Luther called this the most obscure passage in the New Testament. It is uh, very difficult to understand what exactly Peter is saying. And many today would share that same sentiment. One commentator observes that depending on how you take what Peter says, uh, in all the various combinations in what you can take the particular things that he says, there are as many as 180 possible interpretations. All of those interpretations cannot be right. Only one is right, but frankly, knowing which exact combination of ways that you can take what Peter is saying is the right one. Which one is right is difficult to understand. We cannot be certain in the end. But for all of that confusion and for all the difficulty that we can acknowledge as we come to this passage, I don't want us to get so caught up in the details that we miss the forest for the trees. What Peter says here is incredible about Christ. He says uh, that not only has Christ died for our sins that we might be forgiven, but through his death and resurrection, Christ has also brought the entire kingdom of darkness into subjection to himself. And that is what gives us strength to stand firm in our hope, even when it is attacked, to defend it with confidence in Christ, and to press on in this life doing good and serving others, even when it is difficult and only seems to result in greater suffering, more slander, and more hardship. So today, what, just in a high level, what I want you guys to see is that having died for sin, the risen Christ served notice to the entire kingdom of darkness that the days of their tyranny are over. And it is that announcement which gives us strength to defend our hope and to, stay, uh, to keep on doing good as God calls us to do. I just want to start by pointing out our calling to do good, even when we uh, suffer as a result of it. Uh, Peter has emphasized this uh, in so many different ways that I don't really need to dwell on this at length, uh, but merely to point it out for your attention. On a daily basis in our daily lives, God has called us to serve others, to do good. He uh, addresses our marriages, husbands and wives in their respective roles are to serve one another. Uh, we are to serve others in our work, in our neighborhoods and in our communities. We are called to bless and to serve others 
and to do that even when it is difficult, even when those that we might seek to serve are, are slandering us. We see that in this passage. Uh, let me just draw your attention to it in various ways. If you uh, look uh, at verse 13, uh, Peter refers to being zealous for what is good. In verse 14, God calls us to be a people willing, if it comes to it, to suffer for the sake of righteousness. In verse 16, our behavior is to be good, so that when people slander us and revile us, yet what they are saying is not true. It is false. Our behavior is actually good. The slander is false. In verse 17, he just says, it is better if it is God's will for you to suffer for doing good, doing right, rather than to suffer for doing wrong. It's a major theme in 1 Peter. You are called as a Christian to do good, even when it is difficult. Chapter 1, verse 15, Peter calls us to be holy in all, in all of our conduct, to do good as God defines good. In 2.1, Peter instructs us to put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. In chapter 2, verse 11, Paul calls us to abstain from fleshly lusts, echoing chapter 1, verse 14. In chapter 2, verse 12, Peter calls us to keep our behavior excellent, specifically by submitting for the Lord's sake to every human creature. And to submit in this context is to lay aside our own self-serving interests and to seek the welfare of others, to die to self and to love our neighbor even as, uh, even as we love ourselves. We have a calling as Christians to be the servants of all. And then Peter gets specific. We have seen more recently in chapter 2, verse 18, 3, 1, and 3, 7. Husbands and wives and servants are all to serve the, uh, others around them, uh, doing good even when that is difficult. So our calling is to do good uh, no matter what. Now, it is very important that we observe two things. Number one, that we are not alone in this calling. If we are on our own to pursue doing good, it would be depressing. We are not good. We do not have it in ourselves innately to pursue this very high calling. But Christ is good. And he dwells now within our hearts, and he is working in us and for us in order to conform us to his image and like us, in order to make us like he is. Peter uh, calls our attention to chapter two, in chapter 2, verse 21, to Christ, who is the suffering servant, in order that we might know that God has predestined us to be conformed to his image and likeness, and his likeness is that of a suffering servant. God is working, and Christ is working in us to make us like Christ. And secondly, while it is difficult, uh, as difficult as it may be, this life is a life of great joy and happiness. You remember we saw last week that selfishness shrinks our capacity for joy down to just me. I can only find happiness in the good that I have and the good that I enjoy, and I cannot enjoy the good that others have and enjoy. What Christ is doing as he uh, works in our hearts to is he is working in our hearts to expand our capacity for joy so that we are able to find joy in God above all, but also to find joy in the good that others have, even as they have them as a result of our serving them. Heaven is a place of great joy, and part of the exceeding joy of heaven is that we are able, we, our capacity for joy has been greatly expanded so that we are able to find joy in God above all and the good things that others have and enjoy makes us happy, as happy as if those good things had happened to us. So Christ is working, even through this very difficult calling, to expand our joy, our capacity for joy, so that when we get to heaven, 
we enjoy the full goodness of God to all of his people. He is setting us free from our selfishness and our very small capacity for joy. So it's a hard calling, it's a high calling, but it is also a very joyful calling as Christ works in us as, he, uh, as we serve others. So our calling is good. We are called to serve and to bless others. But that does not mean that it will always be admired and appreciated. There will be times, Peter wants us to know, when you are attacked, when you are slandered as an evildoer, when you are seeking to do what God calls you to do, to serve and to bless others and to show forth the goodness of the Lord. There will be times when it is difficult. And that is why we need to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts and be ready to give a defense. In chapter 15, we oftentimes read that and we think of the following situation. There is somebody who has gotten to know you. They've seen the way that you love and serve and bless others in your life. And they have been drawn to admire you. They genuinely appreciate the life that you are living. And because they admire you, they want to know the reason for the hope. And if they ask you in that context, you should be ready to explain the hope that is in you. It is important, however, that we recognize the context, and the context in which this question is raised is in verse 14, intimidation, and in verse 15, later in the verse, slander. In other words, it is not always the case that people will come to you admiring you for your good service, but sometimes it, it's not that your hope is, is uh, being inquired about, it is that your hope is being questioned. It is being attacked by those who seek to intimidate you and who slander your behavior and revile you. Sometimes you are, your hope is being attacked, and when your hope is being attacked by people who say, why should you live this life? Can't you see that it only results in more suffering for you? Sometimes you are seeking to live a good life and you're being slandered as an evildoer. Your hope is questioned, call, called into question by others, and in those times, you need to be ready to give a defense. That's why it's giving a defense of your hope. You're defending it because it is under attack. Uh, how, when, uh, I mean, we feel this. When you're trying to serve others and there's the people, the very people that you're trying to serve sometimes slander you as an evildoer, and you're called to continue to serve those very people, it's hard. Where do we derive the strength to stand firm and confident in our hope, to give a confident defense of our hope, and to press on in this life of doing good and serving others? That's where Peter directs our attention to Christ. And the first thing that he says, to start off in verse 18, he says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That is the first encouragement that we receive, to be confident in our hope, our confidence when our, when our hope is being attacked is that our hope depends entirely and exclusively upon Christ and his finished work. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. His purpose will not fail, that we will be brought to God. Not only are we now reconciled to him, but one day we will be with uh, God in the new creation. The, uh, Paul, uh, Peter gives us a, a whole theology in just that uh, first part of verse 18. It's what we oftentimes call substitutionary atonement. How Christ is our substitute who died uh, the death that we deserve for our sins in our place as our substitute in order to bring us to God, in order to make us one with him, to reconcile us to the Lord. This language of dying for sin is the, is the Old Testament language of sin offerings. Old Testament sacrifices. 
what would happen is that uh, in the Old Testament, when an Israelite sinned against the Lord, he would take an animal, the animal that God prescribed in his word, and he would bring it to the temple. And you can read about this in Leviticus, the first four chapters. But what would happen is he, uh, the sinner, the sinful Israelite, would reach his hand out and put it on the head of the sacrificial animal. And when he did that, it was symbolically, uh, there's a few things that were happening. One is he was transferring his guilt and his sin to the animal. And he was saying that the animal now represents him in his sin. And then when the animal died, the understanding was that the animal was dying, the death that that uh, Israelite deserved in his place as a substitute for him. Now, the uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament uh, did not uh, deal with sin. They were important and they were meaningful in the time, but they were important and they were meaningful because they pointed forward to God's ultimate plan, God's ultimate way of finally dealing with sin. And that was through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sin offering who sacrificed himself for us and for our sin on the cross. In chapter 2, verse 24, we read that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. When you put your faith in Christ, faith is the hand that reaches out and places your sin, your guilt, and your shame on the head of Christ and acknowledges that Christ must die in order for you to be forgiven, in order for you to be right with God and to have hope in him. Christ is our substitute. He dies the just for us, the unjust. We are unjust, and Christ comes in. He, instead of us receiving God's judgment, Christ takes the judgment that we deserve in our place. That's why we call it substitutionary atonement. And notice that Christ suffered. He died for sins once for all. He died for all of your sins, past, present, and future, so that you are forever forgiven. But not only that, all of your sins have been fully paid for with no remainder. There are not a few of your sins that are going to find you out and you will have to answer for them because Christ did not pay for those. And there is not part of your sin that you yourself must pay for. It has all been paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering once for all. Peter goes on to say that our baptism is our flood event. You know that during the flood, God came in judgment over the entire earth. And just eight people, we read uh, later, were brought safely through the flood. Baptism is a kind of flood event for us. It is a sign Baptism does not save us, Peter wants us to be clear, because of some magical powers in the water themselves, as though the water itself of baptism could somehow wash away our sins. Rather, he clarifies, it is the appeal to God for a good conscience. In Hebrews 10, verse 22, we read about how we get a good conscience. We get a good conscience. Our consciences are evil. They accuse us of all of our sin, and we know all of our sin full well. But what happens is, in Hebrews 10.22, God sprinkles the blood of Christ on our consciences, cleansing them so that our consciences are good. It is not the water of baptism that saves us, but it is only the water that points to the blood of Christ, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Baptism visibly assures us that Christ's blood washes away all of our sins. And that means that we are like Noah and his family, we have been brought through the judgment ordeal and we now live on the other side of it. 
The judgment that was coming for us has fallen upon Christ, and that happened already in history, so that we today live as those who are beyond God's judgment. We are like Noah and his family. We have been brought safely through God's judgment. As we look to the future, there is no fearful expectation of God's judgment coming upon us. Baptism points us forward. Baptism is sort of a, a, a flood event for us in which, pointing to Christ, we are brought safely through. Noah and his family were brought safely through the flood by being in the ark. We are brought safely through Christ's judgment by being in Christ. And if we are in Christ, judgment is, is not forward for us. It's in the past. It's already dealt with. Because our hope depends entirely and exclusively upon Christ and his finished work, our hope is secure, and because our hope is secure, we can then be confident. We can be as confident in our hope as our hope is actually secure. It is perfectly secure, and that is why we can stand firm in it. Even when the whole world calls it into question and casts doubt upon it, we know that our hope is secure because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. But there is a second component Christ's death on the cross had implications not only for our personal salvation, our personal forgiveness of sins, and our personal hope as we look to the future. It had massive implications. And this is why we want to see that now made alive, Christ has served notice to the kingdom of darkness. That the time of their tyranny over, the human, uh, over God's people has ended. We want to uh, now begin to look at verse 19 in that confusing uh, part of this passage. Now, the spirits in prison, the message that Christ proclaimed to them, when and where he uh, made that proclamation. You can be thankful today that we don't have time to look at all 180 uh, different permutations and different possible ways that you can take what Peter is saying. Uh, that would not be good. Uh, good use of our time. It would become very tedious very quickly for you. And it would not be very edifying for us. What I want to do instead is give you what I think is the most likely interpretation. Acknowledging that it is difficult and there is some uncertainty. But I believe this is the most likely way to take what Peter is saying. And whenever, this is a good exercise for us, whenever we come to difficult passages where things are unclear, it is always important to go to other passages which are clear and allow them to shed light on that difficult passage. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at some other passages that hopefully shed some light on what Peter is saying. Uh, but let me walk you through the interpretation. First of all, the spirits. Who are the spirits? The spirits are the angels, authorities and powers that uh, Peter goes on to mention in verse 22. In what sense are they in prison? They're in prison, again, in verse 22, because they are, have been subjected to Christ. What message does Christ deliver to them? He delivers uh, the message that the time of their tyranny over God's people is over. He, uh, Christ is serving notice that the days of the tyranny of the kingdom of darkness are now over, now that he has paid for sin and risen from the dead. When did he make this proclamation? After the resurrection. And where, uh, from where did, you know, where did he make this proclamation? I think the most likely scenario is, verse 22, the right hand of God. It is as though when Christ ascended on high and ascended to the throne and was seated at the right hand of God, uh, one of, if not the, uh, the first things that Christ did was to serve notice to the kingdom of darkness that their days of exercising tyranny are over. Now, one last uh, uh, component before we sort of uh, explore this in greater depth 
Uh, why does it say that they were disobedient in the days of the flood? Now, it's important to, re to recognize that he does, uh, he does not say that they were just these spirits that are now in prison were only disobedient at the time of the flood. What he says is uh, formally they were disobedient at the time of the flood. And I think the way that this functions, what Peter is saying is that the, uh, there was a time in the history of our world at the time of the flood when the kingdom of darkness seemed to get the upper hand. Evil uh, spread throughout the earth as the kingdom of darkness seemed to entice uh, the whole human race into sin. There were only eight people who were ultimately delivered at that time. They seemed, these spirits, once were able to destroy an entire world where God looked on the hearts of men and they were only evil all the time. There was violence and bloodshed everywhere and therefore God brought judgment. These same spirits, sort of the worst of the worst in, in uh, they did the worst at the flood. They were once able seemingly to destroy an entire world. These spirits, notorious as they are, are, have been subjected to Christ. And if they have been subjected to Christ, then you may know with confidence that there is no one who can intimidate you, no one who can rob you of your hope, no one who can stand against Christ's purposes for our salvation. Let's walk through uh, this understanding uh, just a little bit. First, uh, you notice that, uh, in the, to go back to verse 18 in the last part of it, uh, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And then this, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now notice he says that Christ was made alive. He does not say merely that Jesus died physically, and he continued to live in his soul. He did continue to live in his soul, but that is not what Peter is saying here. And that rules out one common interpretation, which is the idea that uh, Christ died physically, but you know, he continued to live, and he descended into hell and preached a message to the spirits uh, that were uh, in hell, and he had a message for them. That's not what Peter is saying. It is true that Christ, uh, his soul, continued to live after his body was dead. But you notice, what Peter says is not that he died and then he continued to live, he died, and as a result, he was made alive in some kind of life that he did not have before he went to the cross. He was not, he didn't continue to live, he was made alive. And he was made alive, of course, in the resurrection. He was given resurrection life. Think about 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul contrasts the natural body that we have before the resurrection and the spiritual body, which we have after the resurrection. He spends quite a bit of time talking about there's different kinds of bodies, beasts, you know, animals have one kind, you know, beasts, uh, you know, the birds of the air and animals have one kind of body, and then if you look at the stars, the sun, moon, and the stars, they have a different kind of body. There's different kind of bodies, and he observes that the body that we have before the resurrection and the one that we have after, they're different kinds of bodies. Same body, but they are different. One is a natural body, and he says that it is sown perishable. That this body that we have before the resurrection is able to be dishonored. That it is weak. A spiritual body, by way of contrast, is imperishable, glorious, and powerful. Now, you have to remember that a spiritual body, when we talk about the word spiritual, it does not mean immaterial. It's not a spiritual body in the sense that it's somehow a body that doesn't have any material to it. It's not actually a body at all. Spiritual just refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a body that, uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is no longer uh, subject to decay. 
It's imperishable. It can't be dishonored. It can't uh, be subject to aches and pains and to, to the breakdown uh, that we experience now in our present existence in the body. It is a spiritual body. Now, what uh, to go back to Peter, what he is saying is that Christ died in a natural body. His natural body was perishable. He was able to bear sin and afterwards to, to genuinely die. But while he died in that natural body, he was made alive in the sense that he received a, that spiritual body, the resurrected body, which is no longer subject to decay. And Peter then goes on to say in verse 19, it was in that body that Christ went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now why is that significant? It is hard to overstate what shock and awe would have filled the entire kingdom of darkness when they beheld Christ in a resurrected body. Just sort of, let me try an illustration to sort of uh, communicate uh, the experience. It was in Christ's resurrected body that he made this proclamation and why that was significant. You know the story of uh, King Arthur and the sword and the stone. You know how that uh, story goes. There's a, a stone, there's a sword in it, and whoever pulls out the sword from the stone gets, you know, is king. And many people come and they try to pull uh, the sword out of the stone and they are incapable of doing so. And then eventually Arthur, who appears to be a very common person, comes and he pulls the sword out of the stone signifying that he is king. Now imagine you were uh, Arthur's friend, you know, just, he's just one of your friends, he's just a commoner, you don't think anything of him, and you see Arthur walking around carrying this sword, the sword that was in the stone. When you see the sword, you know instantly it has full of significance. You know instantly that Arthur is king, right? When the kingdom of darkness sees Christ in a resurrected body, it is full of significance, Instantly, they know certain things are true, just as those in the King Arthur story know certain things are instantly true when they see somebody carrying the sword. When Christ appears in his resurrected body, they know that something, uh, something is true. Many people have tried to attain to the resurrection, and each one of them, in turn, failed. Many have tried, just as many tried to pull the sword out of the stone, and every single one failed, being disqualified because of their sin. When the kingdom of darkness sees Christ in a resurrected body, instantly they know here is a human being that unlike Adam, has obeyed God perfectly and attained to the resurrection. No one, no human being is ever found worthy to attain to the resurrection, but here is someone who has done it. Satan tried to entice Christ to disobey and so therefore to disqualify him from attaining the resurrection, but it didn't work, Christ remained faithful. And because he has paid for our sin, Christ has now disarmed the entire kingdom of darkness. You might want to uh, turn back with me uh, to Colossians chapter uh, 3 just briefly, or actually chapter 2, in verses 13 uh, through 15. We can't look at this at, at length, but we read that when Christ went to the cross and you know, God nailed our sin to the cross, we then go on to read this in verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. When Christ went to the cross to pay for our sins, and our, the record of our sins was nailed to the cross, at one and the same time, God, uh, Christ made a public uh, spectacle of the kingdom of darkness uh, triumphing over them in the cross. So the question that we have to ask is, how was Christ's 
uh, death for sin and resurrection, how is that a victory over the entire kingdom of darkness? And here I'd like to uh, call your attention to uh, Hebrews 2, verse 14. There we read that Christ took flesh, again, the, the perishable kind, where he was able to die for sin. Christ took flesh in order that through his death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all of their lives. So here, as a result of Christ's death, we have a statement that Christ has made the, the Satan powerless and set us free from uh, the slavery that we were in through the fear of death all of our lives. What is Satan's strategy, and how does Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, how does he undo it? You know that Satan has no power of his own. His strategy is to entice humans to sin against God, and then afterwards to bring down the hammer of God's justice and wrath upon the whole human race, so as to get back at God and rob him of worshipers. So Satan's strategy, part of his strategy, is to entice us to sin. In Ephesians 2, you remember, we read, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, in which, you remember, we follow the ways, the course of the, uh, the prince of the power of the air, Satan. And what that looks like in practice is that we indulge ourselves in every kind of selfishness, in every kind of, of uh, sin against the Lord. We live to gratify those sinful desires. So Satan's method, uh, first of all, is to entice us to sin. And Satan, we read in Ephesians chapter 2, is somehow at work in the sons of disobedience and those who live a selfish life, living to serve self and to gratify all their sinful lusts in their hearts. Satan's uh, strategy, uh, one part of it is to entice us to sin. Secondly, he accuses us. Whenever we come in our, in our experience of sin to realize how miserable, you know, we thought it was going to make us happy, but how miserable we are, and uh, to the degree that we, uh, it would cross our minds to contemplate uh, turning to the Lord for forgiveness and for help. Satan accuses. He's right there to whisper in our ears, I know what you have done. You know that God is holy. You know that you, because of all the things that you have done, if you go, I myself will be the accuser in God's court, and I will make sure that God puts you to death on the spot. You know that you cannot turn to God and find grace and love and forgiveness. Satan is the great accuser of the saints. By holding death, the threat of death over them, he keeps us on the run from God. So Satan entices, he accuses, and finally he deceives. He makes sure that we don't understand the gospel. If we do recognize that sin is miserable, why would you want to live like that, live a life of sin, and we begin uh, to pursue holiness, we become self-righteous. We might get religion, or we become, might become quite religious, and we end up being like the Pharisees. All our lives, in one way or another, we are deceived, and we don't really understand the free offer of God's love for us uh, and forgiveness in Christ and the help that he offers us uh, through Christ. So we never turn to the Lord. So understanding the strategy of Satan, how does Christ answer that and reverse it? We read, for instance, that uh, Christ, as a result of Christ's uh, uh, death on the cross, uh, he triumphed over the kingdom of darkness, and now the whole kingdom of darkness is, in a sense, in prison. In Revelation 20, verse 1, we read that God sent an angel holding the key to the abyss 
and a great chain in his hand, and he bound Satan for a thousand years, so that, listen, so that he could no longer deceive the nations. Hiding God's offer of salvation in and through Jesus Christ. Satan was wonderful at deceiving the nations, but now he has been subjected to Christ. He, can, he has been bound in a sense, so that he can no longer deceive the nations and keep from them God's offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. He appears in his resurrected body, and so sinners like us know, in spite of all the sins that we have committed, that because Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, we know that we are forgiven. And we know it because Christ is raised from the dead. We know that God has accepted his sacrifice as pleasing in his sight. We know the truth because Christ is there, we can look to him, he is resurrected, that is God's own stamp of approval, that his sacrifice for our sin was sufficient, that we are now forgiven. And not only that, because we know that the whole kingdom of darkness is subject to Christ, we also have confidence because we know that not even the most powerful forces that arraign themselves against the kingdom of God can triumph over us. The worst of the worst are subject to Christ. And that gives us great confidence Whatever we might be intimidated about, whoever may be slandering us, whether it's Satan himself who speaks the truth about our sin, we have an answer in Jesus Christ. We have taken Christ through his, uh, by, by uh, you know, paying for our sins and assuring us through his resurrection that, Christ, that God has accepted it. He has rendered uh, the devil toothless. His accusations mean nothing because our sins have fallen upon Christ and he has paid for them already. How does this uh, help you when your hope is attacked and when you're seeking to live a good life and yet you're being slandered for, uh, for seeking to honor the Lord? First of all, Christ's death and resurrection bolsters our hope in the sense that we don't need to fear any intimidation and slander. We know the truth is that we are forgiven. Yes, we have sinned and failed in many ways, but we do not waver in our confidence and our hope because we know that our hope depends entirely and exclusively on Christ alone. And it encourages, so we know our hope is secure and we know that the entire kingdom of darkness, say what they will, do what they will to us, they are subjected to Christ our Savior and they cannot do us any harm permanently. However, uh, you know, we may despair in the meantime. We know that Christ has won a victory for us and that we belong to him. And nothing can destroy our hope. But secondly, we do good. We know that if people slander us, they slander our Savior too. You know how in his earthly ministry, Jesus was so often slandered as an evildoer. He's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He's a drunkard. He's working with Satan. You know the way that Christ in his life was slandered. When we know that our Savior was slandered while seeking to do us good, and he went all the way to the cross, it gives us the strength that we need to know whatever we may be slandered, that slander in a sense has fallen on Christ and gives us the confidence we need to continue to press forward doing good, serving others, just as God in Christ has served us. We know that Christ is serving us. We're not alone in this life. And it gives us great confidence. Today, as we come to the Lord's table together, one of the reasons that Christ, in his wisdom, has given us the bread and the wine, these physical things, is he wants us to know that these are not just words. 
But there is a physical flesh and blood redeemer who came and who did these things, whose very real body and very real blood were separated for you at the cross. These are not just words. It's not just a pep talk. But through the bread and the wine, in a sense, what God does is he impresses upon you that you must take Christ, a very real flesh and blood Savior, and you must take him to yourself. Just as you take the bread and the wine, there is hope, not just through words, inspiring talk. It's not just an inspiring talk that saves you. There's a real flesh and blood redeemer. And through the bread and the wine, he impresses that upon you. So today, take the bread and the wine and know that you have a real flesh and blood Savior who suffered and died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that we might have hope that we will one day. We are already reconciled to God now. Judgment is passed for us. We've been through the flood ordeal of God's judgment that's been laid upon Christ. And as we look to the future, we have good hope. One day we will eat again the wedding feast of the Lamb in the new creation. And through these things, because you have a very real flesh and blood redeemer, your hope is real and it is secure. Today, if you do not yet know Christ, you're getting to know him, but you have not yet come to place your confidence in him, we would ask you to simply allow the bread and the wine to pass you by. We would ask you not to participate. Scriptures warn us that if we eat and drink the bread and the wine without faith in Christ, without seeing our need for a Savior who would die for our sins and recognizing that, that we can eat and drink judgment to ourselves. But for now, contemplate the free offer of God's grace to you in Christ. Satan can no longer deceive you concerning that. Christ is able to reveal himself to you and contemplate how Christ is revealing himself to you. We encourage you to come to Christ and join us soon at this table. I'd like to invite the elders to come forward at this time.